Amen. Boy, I don't know about you, but I needed that tonight. I needed that time of worship. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 34 tonight. So let's open our Bibles there. Page 530, excuse me, if you're using Bible under the seat in front of you. Second Chronicles 34. We're going to look at the last good king over the southern kingdom of Judah. The last good king before the southern kingdom of Judah was judged at the hands of the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to have this time, as always, in your word. And Lord, as we uh, consider the challenges that we face in this culture, Lord, it's so easy to get down. It is a battle. But Lord, thank you that with you there's always hope, and there's hope in every generation. And that hope comes when there's a remnant of your people who will not bow to any other, who stay devoted to you, who stay true to your principles. Lord, I pray that all of us here tonight would be numbered in that remnant today in these dark days. You can do amazing things through a remnant that's committed to you. Bless this time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Second Chronicles 34, verse 1. It says, Josiah was how old? Eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So here we have a boy king, a little boy at the age of eight who becomes king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, he was under adult supervision and mentors until he grew to a formidable age. So there were others that were calling the shots. But here's a kid, becomes king at the age of eight, and he will reign for 31 years over the southern kingdom of Judah. And as the text says, he was a good king. Great king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father, King David. It says that he did not waver. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left hand. He kept his eyes on the prize. And for his entire reign, 
he served the Lord. And it was a good thing for Judah that he came along and became king. When Josiah uh, took over this kingdom, it was the darkest period in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. The darkest days that you can imagine. After Hezekiah died, that great reformer who we studied last week, after all that he had did, after he died, his son Manasseh took over. And Manasseh was the most wicked king in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he reigned for 55 years. He was a massive pagan idolater. He basically undid everything that Hezekiah had done. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Molech with child sacrifice. They worshipped Ashtoreth. He was a sorcerer. He was an astrologist. He turned the temple of Jerusalem into an idolatrous brothel. Set up an image of Ashtoreth right there in the temple. And she was worshipped with all kinds of sexually immoral acts. And he did this for 55 years. Set up all of the pagan altars all over the land. And Second Kings also tells us that Manasseh was a bloodthirsty man. Josephus tells us that he held executions in his court daily during his 55 years. Many were killed. Many were martyred. People that loved God were martyred. According to tradition, it was at the command of Manasseh that, that Isaiah the prophet was executed, and the book of Hebrews tells us that he was sawn in two. So this is Manasseh reigning for 55 years. The scripture says that under his rule, the southern kingdom of Judah became worse, more evil, more wicked than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the nation of Israel came into the land. So here's God's people, quote, unquote, behaving more wickedly than non-believers. After Manasseh died, his son took over, a guy by the name of Ammon. He also continued all of the wickedness, all of the garbage, all of the violence. He only reigned for two years. He was assassinated by some rebels in his own home. And so that is when this little boy takes over as king. The kingdom of Judah has just lived through 57 years of the worst kind of paganism and idolatry. The culture is completely wicked. And by the way, we know that when Josiah took office, the Lord had already decided that he was judging the southern kingdom of Judah. They had passed the point of no return. They would be taken captive. Their kingdom would be destroyed. It was not a matter of if that nation would be judged. It was when. 
So most likely, Josiah could be the last king. Very easily. His generation could be the last generation in that wicked land. But look what happened. Look at verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. So in his eighth reign, eighth year reign, at the tender age of 16 years old, this young man began to seek the God of David. So from the time that he was eight to 16, everything in the land was going on. They were still behaving wickedly, all the adults in charge, and he's just growing up in the palace. But when he turned 16, he began to seek God. We don't know why. We don't know how. Perhaps he listened to a message from Jeremiah, the prophet, or Zephaniah, or Nahum, or the prophet Habakkuk. They were around teaching during those times. Perhaps it was a friend or an acquaintance or a family member who encouraged him in the Lord. Or perhaps this 16-year-old young man looked around his culture, saw the wickedness, became disgusted with it. Or perhaps like Solomon, he got alone one night and he said, Lord, I'm king. I need wisdom. Whatever the case, he began to seek the God of David. And the Holy Spirit was drawing Josiah to himself, speaking to Josiah, and this young man responded. His belief grew, his faith grew, it took root. So look what we read in the middle of verse 3. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. This is the twelfth year of his reign. How old is he now? He's 20 years old. And this 20-year-old king gets on fire for the Lord. And he begins to purge his city, his kingdom, of all of the idolatry that had been in place for 57 years. Look what it says in verse 4. Look how serious he was about it. It says, They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke in pieces, he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, <laughs> cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, 
had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Do you see what this kid did? He went on a crusade, didn't he? He said, I'm cleaning up my culture. Our kingdom will be cleaned up. And he went and he tore down all the altars. It would seem that he even executed some of the false priests, burned their bones on their own pagan altars, smashed everything to dust. And when he got done in Judah in Jerusalem, if you read the text, he went throughout all of the land of Israel, even into parts of the land where only a a few remnants of people were left. Took it all out. Purged the place. Cleansed the place. A 20-year-old man who was set on fire to seek the Lord at the age of 16. That's awesome. Here again, we have another story in the scripture of God using a teenager. A teenager. And you see it throughout scripture. King David was a teenager when he took on that giant named Goliath. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were teenagers when they stood for the Lord as captives in Babylon. Esther was a beautiful young teenage woman when she saved her people from annihilation. Young Timothy, very young man, when he began to follow Paul the Apostle on those missionary journeys that changed the world. Teenagers, look what God can do with teenagers. God will use teenagers mightily, especially when there's no adults in the room that will do anything. He'll get a hold of them. And man, if you can get a teenager on fire for the Lord, don't teenagers have energy? Don't you wish you had their energy? You get a teenager on fire for Jesus Christ and that energy, that passion, that faith. There are a lot of people, and I've spoken with a lot of people, who have sort of written off this younger generation. Don't. The younger generation certainly has some challenges, don't they? But I've, I've heard a lot of people in the older generation, oh, they're a lost generation. They're always on their phones. They're in their own little worlds. They have no parental supervision. They have no authority at school. They're being taught all kinds of uh, liberal, anti-Christian doctrine at school. And I'll tell you what, you look at the teenagers today and it is tough, isn't it? I personally believe that they are the most tempted generation in the history of the human race. Think about the temptation they face. You know, it's in the 1940s, teachers were asked to identify the major problems they faced in their schools. They listed talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in halls, cutting in line, dress code infractions, and littering. Don't you wish we could go back to those days? 
In the 1990s, teachers were asked, what's the biggest problems you face in school? Drug and alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. And it's only become worse today in the younger generation. All of that maxed. Add to that um, blatant, aggressive homosexuality, transgenderism. Add to that all of the technology, all the pressures of, of social media. Add to that all of the easy access that kids have to things like pornography and violence and vile garbage. This generation has it very tough, but let me tell you, don't give up on them. Parent, don't give up on your teenager. Pray for them. Keep reaching out to them. Pray for our youth pastor, Daniel Rodriguez, who's working with the youth right there next door. Pray for the children's ministry workers. If God can get some teenagers on fire, some Daniels, some Josiahs, some Esthers, oh, what God can do. Josiah has purged the kingdom. Now look what happens next in the story. This is my favorite part. Look at verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign. So how old is he now? He's 26. The 18th year of his reign. When he had purged the land in the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea. Masih, that guy. The governor of the city. And Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Okay, so it's 26 years old. He's purged the land. Now he sets his sight on repairing the temple in Jerusalem that's been neglected for many years. It's falling apart. It's time to put it back together. So he organizes a committee of these guys, and he sends them into the house of the Lord to speak with the high priest, a man who's named Hilkiah. Look at verse 9. When they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. So you find out here now that Josiah has made his intent known. He's told everybody throughout the kingdom, we're going to repair the temple. He's called on the nation to give money finances towards that work. They've responded generously. Everybody's given money. It comes with the committee. It's all good to go. They're going to repair the temple. Verse 10. Then they put it in the hand of the foreman who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. They gave it to the craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. 
and the men did the work faithfully. Look at the end of verse 12. Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. So picture this huge construction scene. All of this activity. They're laying stone and timber, working with floors. All of this work. All of the master craftsmen have been funded. They're going to work. They even have the musicians in place singing praise to the Lord as all this work is done. So here they are. They're, they're, they're going into the different crevices of the temple, into the different rooms. They're cleaning it out. They're remodeling. They're renovating. All of that. When all of a sudden, someone makes a discovery. And actually, it's a rediscovery. Look it out. Check it out. Verse 14. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So now picture this. All this activity is going on. The high priest goes into this place and he finds a scroll. Yeah, you know, dusts it off, opens it up. It's the Bible. It's the law of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. That's a pretty important document, wouldn't you say? That's sort of like our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence. This is the law that's to govern the way Jerusalem is to operate. It governs the worship life for the entire kingdom. The priests are supposed to know it. They're supposed to obey it. They're supposed to teach it. It regulates how they do sacrifices and Passover and all of those things. They haven't had this book for 57 years. Imagine being without the Bible for 57 years and what that would do to a culture. And don't miss the irony of this. Their most important religious document was lost in their most important religious location. It's been buried under the clutter in the temple. This would be like finding a Bible in the church that hasn't been found for 57 years. Whoa! We found the law. Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan. Verse 16, so Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, all that was committed to your servants they are doing, and they've gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. So he comes to 
the king and gives them, you know, a report. We handed off all the money. They're starting. And then it's almost like, oh, and by the way, by the way, Shiphon the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shiphon read it before the king. So it's almost like the high priest and the Shiphon guy, they're not even sure of the treasure that they have. We found this interesting book. Look how Josiah reacted to it. Thus it happened, verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, that he what? He tore his clothes. He is a man of God. He has a heart that's tender towards the Lord. And he knows what he just heard. This is God's word. This is God's truth. This is his law. And he repents. He grieves. The scripture says he wept. Because Shaphan read him the words of this law. And the last words of the law you find towards the end of Deuteronomy, where it talks about the blessings and the curse that a nation will experience depending upon whether or not they follow the law. And he hears that and he says, oh, our nation's in big trouble. We've broken this law. We haven't been keeping this law. And so he grieves and he repents and he wants to know more. Look at verse 20. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. We need to find out what's going on. Go talk to a prophet. We're in big trouble. Verse 22, so Hilkiah and those the king had appointed went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom. Now, I find that very interesting. Jeremiah was around. Nahum was around. Zephaniah was around. Uh, Habakkuk was around. But they, they went to a female prophetess. And she was just as good as the guys. What is this? What would the Lord say? And this female prophetess basically says, well, I have good news and bad news. By the way, just curious, when somebody says that, how many of you want the good news first? Nobody. Everybody wants the bad news first, right? Well, that's what they get. They get the bad news first. Verse 23, then she answered them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out 
on this place and not be quenched. Tell the king Jerusalem's going to be judged. That southern kingdom is going to be judged. The calamity is coming. There's no escape. That's the bad news. Look at the good news. Verse 26. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, watch this, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. Judgment is coming. It is inevitable. But young, godly, tender hearted Josiah. I'm going to delay it. Your generation won't see it. Josiah, this won't happen under your reign. You've escaped. Your generation has been spared. How beautiful. Well, Josiah got that message, verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Check this out. The king, the president of that nation called everybody together, all of the nation together in the courtyard of the temple. And he read the law out loud to everyone. Verse 31, the king stood in his place, made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. What a great godly king. Verse 32, and he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. He reads the book. He makes a covenant with the Lord. We will live by this law. He tells the priests, he tells everyone gathered, we are going to live by this law. We are going to honor God. And that's what they did for the rest of his reign. And guess what? They weren't judged. Their generation was spared. They bought time. Think of that. 
Think about the extra people that were saved. Beautiful. Well, after he died, everything went south quickly. King Jehoahaz took over. He reigned for a staggering three months. (laughs) He was deposed by King Necho of Egypt. His brother Jehoiakim took over. Jehoiakim, he was 25 years old and he reigned for 11 years. And the scripture says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, basically undid everything that Josiah had done. And while that king was in charge... The Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar came into power. They took out Assyria. They become the big dogs. And during Jehoiakim's reign, the Babylonians came against the city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. They besieged the city. They ransacked the place. And they took many Jews captive to Babylon, including the king including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. After Jehoiakim, another king was put on the the throne. His name was Jehoiakim. And again, he lasted a staggering three months. He was deposed. And so that's when King Zedekiah took the throne. Look over at chapter 36. And look at verse 11. It says Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Who spoke from the mouth of the Lord and he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and all the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations, defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their father sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. Zedekiah becomes king. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon put him on the throne, thought he would be a yes man. Everything was great till about year 10. Zedekiah got all full of himself and thought that he could rebel against the Babylonian Empire. Jeremiah the prophet, if you read through his book, warns the king time and time again, don't rebel against Babylon. Submit to Babylon. Nah, prophets are sent. Get right with the Lord. Nah, they're mocked. And so, verse 17, it says, Therefore he, God, brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak, 
he gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. They burned down the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Folks, 22 and a half years after the death of Josiah. 22 and a half years. The nation was judged. Nebuchadnezzar came. Burned down the temple. Solomon's great temple was completely destroyed in 586 B.C. Broke down the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Brought Zedekiah out in front of everybody. And brought Zedekiah's children before his eyes and killed them one by one right in front of the dad. And then after all of his children were killed before his eyes, King Nebuchadnezzar put out both of his eyes. Blinded him so that the last image King Zedekiah would ever remember was the death of his children. Put him in shackles, took him home where he rotted in a Babylon cell. Many of the Jews were killed. Didn't matter. Man, woman, child, elderly, weak. A great slaughter. And those that were not slaughtered were taken captive to Babylon. The judgment came. The wickedness was judged. And it was swift. And it was terrible. But it didn't happen under the boy king. didn't happen under Josiah. What do you think about that? This man was not able to avert God's judgment finally. But he delayed it. He saved his nation. Many people were spared. As I studied this and as I looked at this, man, I really believe with all my heart that we are in a very similar situation in our day and age, in our culture, in this nation. This world has become so corrupt, hasn't it? Our nation has become so corrupt. Wickedness all over the place. Sin all over the place. It seems like the enemy um, has made inroads in every sector of society. And there's so many fires. I almost feel like, you know, somebody's overturned a box of BBs. 
on a hardwood floor. And Christians are scrambling around trying to pick up each one and put it back in the box. I was reminded of a children's story about the little Dutch boy who saved Holland. His name's Hans Brinker in the story. Anybody remember this story? Here's this little kid walking along a dam, a seawall, that keeps the ocean from coming into Holland. And he's walking along, and all of a sudden he notices a leak. And so he puts his finger in the hole. And there he is, standing with his finger in the hole. And all the government officials come along and say, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm saving Holland. And they go, you're doing a great job. They give him a certificate. And there he stands day after day. Instead of repairing the wall, there's this little kid. And that works great until another hole pops out. And pretty soon as the story goes, instead of fixing the wall, the government just keeps getting more little boys to put their fingers in the holes And eventually, they run out of little boys. (laughs) Of course, the story is about the absolute waste and stupidity of government bureaucracy. But you know what? That's how I feel today in our culture. I feel like there's all these holes. I feel like the dam's leaking. And my friend, I don't feel like we have enough fingers or thumbs. I look all over the place and I see fires and I see heartache and I see trouble. Seems like the enemy wins on many occasions. And how tough it is to do the Lord's work. You know, we just found out today there's a beautiful ministry here locally that feeds homeless people. And it's going to have to shut its doors because it's not funded. We were going to send a medical team into Juarez with Harvest Hands this Saturday. All the dental equipment and all of that. And they had to cancel it because the border won't allow their truck through. And you look at that and you think, here you are, you're trying to fight. You're trying to plug holes and it's, it's a leak. You look at what the enemy is doing to the younger generation today. And and it is my opinion that our great nation has passed the point of no return. I believe judgment's coming. Not only to our nation, but to the entire world. By the way, the Bible teaches that, right? You read the Bible, you look at the last day prophecies, judgment is coming. And I believe it's coming quickly. However, can we delay it? Can we delay it? Is there a chance that like Josiah, we could buy some time? Anybody else have friends and relatives that you'd like to see get saved? 
How would we buy time? How can we save this generation? My brother and sister in Christ, listen carefully. It starts with us. It starts with the church. It starts with Christian men and women. If we're going to buy some time, then we need to be like Josiah. And we need to seek God. We need to seek the Lord. We need to humble ourselves. We need to get right with God if we're not. We need to seek his face. We need the Lord to be number one in our lives. How many of you recognize that verse? Second Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is a promise for our generation? The Lord says, if my people, my church, the men and women who claim me, those who are called by my my name, if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek the Lord, we need to seek the Lord. Church needs to be filled with men and women who are seeking God, humbling themselves, praying. What else did Josiah do? He got busy, didn't he? Was Josiah a passive king? Oh, we'll just, you know, what happens, happens. Four years, he cleansed the whole land. He got busy in his generation. He went out there and he tore down pagan altars. He fought. He engaged. He didn't back away. Brother and sister in Christ, as intimidating as our society is right now, as intimidating as the culture is right now, we cannot back down. We must keep fighting. We must stand for the truth. We must champion the cause of Jesus Christ in our culture. There's a guy lighting an old lamp, street lamp. That used to be what you'd see every night in some streets. At age 12, Robert Louis Stevenson was looking out into the dark from his upstairs window, watching a man light the street lanterns. His governess came into the room and asked what he was doing, and he replied, I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. What a beautiful way to put it. I'm watching people cut holes in the darkness. Though we live in a dark day, and it is dark, we can be used by God to cut holes in the darkness. Don't shy back. Don't back off. Whatever it may cost, You stand for the Lord. Take every conversation with everybody seriously. Engage. 
Use your influence in your job. Point people to Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says as Christians, we are light and we're salt. And salt is is put there to preserve. That's what we do. Let's preserve. Let's save this generation. Let's buy some more time. And then what also happened in the days of Josiah? Probably hard to see that, but it's a Bible with dust on it. And it says what? Read me. The most amazing thing that happened in the days of Josiah, they found the scripture. They elevated it once again. They taught it. They preached it. They ordered their lives by it. A return to scripture. A revival in the word of God. Throughout history, every lasting revival that is taking place has been linked to a rediscovery of the written word of God. Every revival. Christian, in this day and age, we need to be men and women who are dedicated to the Word of God. Have you lost the Bible in your house? Have you lost it under a mountain of dust? Have you lost it in a pile of other books? Is it just some kind of an ornamental display that graces your coffee table? My friend, listen, if you really, really want to make a difference, you've got to be in the word of God for yourself. Day by day, studying, getting to know. I promise you, if you study God's word, you will be healthy and strong and fruitful. Just make the time. Just make the time. And by the way, the church in America and the church in this world needs to keep the Bible at an elevated place. We can't get off track. And I will tell you, I think there are churches in America where the Bible has been lost under the clutter of church activity and programs and entertainment media and a bunch of gobbledygook psychology. How many pastors in churches in America, they barely use the Bible. It's more of a, like a, you know, a, a, a self-help motivational speaker type of thing. In a lot of, in a lot of churches, they start from a verse and they springboard into their own opinion. The Bible's lost. They teach from the Bible. I think we should teach the Bible. Just verse by verse. Let the Bible speak for itself. Don't ever allow God's word to get lost. 
in your life. Amen? Those are very important. And it's a call to all of us tonight. Seek the Lord. Humble yourself. Pray. Keep God first place. Keep up the fight. Keep going. Keep battling. And keep God's word central. Hmm. The lesson of Josiah. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord, it does take a lot of courage in this day and age to stand for what's right. And I fear that a lot of your people um, shy away from it. I fear that maybe even some of us here tonight, if we truly admit it, we, we don't, we want to just sort of tiptoe. Lord, I pray we'd be strong in the faith and that we would stand consistently for your truth. Lord, that we would plug holes. And Lord, we know, Lord, that by your spirit, we can do those things tactfully. We know that you can give us wisdom. The right words with the right tone. Lord, you can empower your people to give strong words in a spirit of love. Lord, at this time, your people need to be so very skillful. So very skillful. In the handling of your word. And in engaging this culture. Lord, help us. Lord, there are so many that we know of that need to know you yet. And Lord, it's a, it, it really is. It's a bittersweet thing for us to think of you coming again. We want you to come again. We long for you, but we also know that it, it means terrible things for a lot of people. God, I pray that we would serve you and be salt and light. Till the day we die, till the day you take us home, we would never give up the fight. Use our lives now, Father. Shine through us. Thank you for a hopeful message tonight. That even in the midst of a dark society, your light can shine through your people. And make that so, Lord, in our lives, in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen.